Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Alina Everett, a Johnson MBA student and president of the High Tech Club. I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Reggie Fisame, the former president and chief operating officer of Nintendo of America. Reggie is also a 1983 graduate of the Dyson School at Cornell University and the inaugural leader in residence at Dyson. The conversation focuses on lessons learned throughout Reggie's 30-plus year career in consumer packaged goods, food and beverage, and media and entertainment. He also discusses how his famous line, my body is ready, became a meme and what it means to him today. I hope you enjoy the conversation and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Serena Elavia. Reggie Fisame is the former president and chief operating officer of Nintendo America. His career at Nintendo spanned 15 years, where he served first as executive vice president of sales and marketing for three years, before becoming president and chief operating officer. Prior to his time at Nintendo, Reggie worked in consumer packaged goods and the food and beverage industry. At Nintendo, Reggie oversaw a revitalization of the Nintendo brand and record-breaking sales of numerous products, including the Wii and Nintendo Switch. Because of Reggie's theatrical antics, most notably his famous quote of, my body is ready when introducing the Wii balance board in 2007, he gained a strong following among Nintendo fans, which led to gamers calling him the Reginator. Reggie retired from Nintendo in April 2019 and joined Cornell's Dyson School as the inaugural leader for the Leader in Residence program. As a leader in residence, Reggie will share his leadership lessons and principles learned over his 35-year career with students. He is also a 1983 graduate of the Dyson School at Cornell University. And in October 2019, Reggie received the Walter Day Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Video Game Hall of Fame for his services to the gaming industry. Reggie, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. Well, thank you so much for having me. That introduction sounded wonderful. Perfect. That means we did our homework. So you've had a varied career, starting in consumer packaged goods and food before transitioning over to Nintendo. Can you walk us through your career and what led you to change each role along the way? Sure. So I think the right place to start is my time at Cornell University. That is what's brought me back here uh, to interface with students and to share my principles, whether they be life principles or leadership principles. When I was here at Cornell at the Dyson School, I was a finance major uh, and also focused on general business. And I viewed my career path to be in banking. I had interned at banks. I was a teaching assistant for the finance professor. I thought I was going to be a banker. And fortunately for me, the last semester of my senior year, I was invited to interview with Procter & Gamble. And I have to tell you, I didn't know much about Procter & Gamble at that point. I hadn't sought out this interview. It had been recommended to the recruiters at Procter & Gamble that they talk to me. At that time, Procter & Gamble would hire about 100 people into their brand management program every year. They recruited all the top universities with a focus on MBA students. That year, I was one of about four undergrads that were hired into the program. So in many ways, it was a complete left turn. 
But what excited me about the P&G opportunity was that I would learn the fundamentals of growing a business. Not only the marketing side, but thinking about the profitability, the new product introductions, the sales planning, all of the different elements to grow a business. And I was at Procter & Gamble for eight years, a wonderful eight years, continuing to hone my knowledge of how to grow businesses and sustain businesses. But as I was going through that process, one of the things that I learned about my own internal needs is that I need to grow things aggressively. 10, 15, 20% year-on-year growth is really what excites me. And it's the chaos of that growth, the planning for that growth, how to instill leadership in the individuals that are driving that growth. And the consumer products industry is not that type of business. It's a 2 3 4% organic growth type of business. So that led me to a career in the restaurant industry, working for Pizza Hut and then Panda Management Company. They own the brands Panda Inn and Panda Express. That experience led me back into the beverage industry, working for Guinness Import Company. I followed my boss to a private equity situation in the global bicycle business, which was very, very interesting. At each step, for me, the motivation was, how do I make a personal difference? How do I grow what had been a small business or small industry into something more meaningful? And I've always been thoughtful of how do I, how do I challenge myself in new and unpredictable ways to learn and to grow? That led me to MTV Networks, working on the VH1 brand. And I was there during 9-11, uh, which was quite an experience. And it was that experience in the entertainment industry that then led me to Nintendo and the, the wonderful ride there for the last 15 years. So making the jump to media and entertainment was a dramatic change from your prior roles and could have been quite risky. Throughout your career, how has your view on taking risks changed when evaluating your career path and the day-to-day risks you take at work? So I am very comfortable with risk. And one of the things that Nintendo is very proud of is they as a company are very similar with risk, very comfortable with risk. Our former president, Satoru Iwata, once said, Nintendo doesn't run away from risk. We run towards it. And as you look at the products that they've launched over time, you can really see that in how they've continually disrupted the gaming industry. For me personally, I would describe it this way. I am always open to alternative outcomes. I'm always open to opportunities that I may not have thought about previously, but that as I look into them, they make more and more sense. Procter & Gamble was an alternative outcome that wasn't planned, but the more I looked at that opportunity, the more sense it made. MTV Networks was an alternative outcome, arguably one of the best alternative outcomes for me because it not only led to Nintendo, but it led to my meeting my wife and our, uh, you know, right now 18-year relationship. So being open to alternatives is something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I've talked about as one of my life principles. And I really believe that whether you are uh, looking at this through a personal lens or through a business lens, you have to fully consider all alternatives. 
you know, bringing it back to a, a business context, I do believe my risk tolerance is quite high, but I'm also very thoughtful. I look at data. I continuously consider what the alternatives mean before moving forward and pursuing a path. And so you mentioned your life principles, and I know you have a set of principles for next generation leaders. Which one is your favorite? Which one resonates with you the most? You know, they all resonate. And to step back for a moment, I'm a big believer in principles. When I was at Procter & Gamble, I was exposed to Stephen Covey and his work on principles. I was exposed to David Ogilvie and his principles for advertising. Procter & Gamble has their own principles for evaluating managers and how they view successful managers. So early on, I was exposed to principles, and I believe in principles. As you mentioned, I have life principles. I gave a commencement address earlier this year, May of 2019, and um, I'm thrilled that commencement address has been viewed over 150,000 times on my uh, Twitter account. But what's important to me has been the reaction by students and by parents to these life principles. Leadership principles, I have seven leadership principles, and they really have been honed over my almost 40-year career. You know, which one do I love most? You know, it's like, which child do I love most? <laughs> I mean, I've really thought about these principles. But if, if you had to focus me on just one, I would say it's courage and decision-making. As a leader, you have to make tough decisions. You will not always have all of the information. And at times, people will disagree with the decision. But you have to be thoughtful and you have to stick to your guns. And in my talk here at Cornell, the, the example I gave dealt with the Wii, with Nintendo. You know, you look back, uh, you know, here's a system that sold over 100 million consoles, really upended the video game business. And yet there was one key decision that, in my view, determined whether we would achieve those types of results or, you know, something smaller. And it was the decision to include Wii Sports as part of the proposition. And what's really interesting is that Wii Sports was included with Wii only in the Americas and in Europe. It was not included in Japan. So it actually gives you a test market to look at the difference in results. Mm -hmm. And far and away, the results in the Americas and Europe surpassed those in the Japanese market. And I do believe it was the decision, the tough, tough decision to include Wii Sports in the proposition. Look at it this way. The developers knew that the product was fantastic, Wii Sports as a piece of software. And selling Wii Sports for $40 or $50 when you're going to sell literally, you know, 50, 60 million copies of this game was a huge forego of profit. But what it did was it created fun right out of the box. And it created an experience that everyone in Europe and in the Americas could enjoy with Wii. And that's why there were competitions at homes. There were competition in bars. That's why Wii Sports was played in retirement homes. (laughs) It was the ubiquity of the experience that drove the results. And it, it came down to that decision that I advocated for. And in the end, the management team at Nintendo supported. But this decision to include Wii Sports as part of the basic proposition that was Wii. 
So courage and decision-making is really the leadership principle of, of all of the seven that I've shared that I really do believe separates the great leaders from those that don't achieve truly the superior results. That's a fantastic story that really embodies that principle. So glad you brought up Nintendo. Want to take a bit of a step back. You arrived at Nintendo in 2003. What did the company landscape look like and what was the first thing you did? So in 2003, the marketplace on the home console side was comprised of Nintendo's GameCube. Xbox had just entered the market during that generation and Sony had their PlayStation 2. And on a global marketplace, PlayStation 2 was dominating the market. GameCube and Microsoft Xbox was about the same size. So for a company used to dominating the home console business, Nintendo was in an uncomfortable position. Also, earlier that year, Sony had announced that they were entering the handheld market where Nintendo competed with its Game Boy and Game Boy Advance. And the Game Boy line of products generated significant revenue and significant profit for Nintendo. And so just with an announcement that Sony was entering the market with their own handheld, Nintendo stock took a significant haircut. So that was the environment that I was walking into. But I had played Nintendo products for years. My first gaming system that I personally owned was a Super Nintendo Entertainment System. I owned 80 to 90 games for that system. Wow. And I was, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked as, as I'm going through my orientation that I learned that the average consumer, the average consumer owned about six games for the Super NES. And here I was with you know, 80 to 90 games. So super I guess, fan. <laughs> I guess that defined me as a bit of a super fan. I knew Nintendo. I knew its franchises. I had owned the not only a Super NES, but a N64. I had owned a PlayStation 2. I owned an Xbox. They were all in my house. Interestingly, at the time I was interviewing with Nintendo, I did not own a GameCube. So as a consumer, I could see issues and opportunities. I could have a sense of, of where the needs were. Uh, not only from a sales and marketing perspective, which is the role I was being hired into, but just from an overall perspective. I would say a defining moment for me actually happened before I was an employee. During the recruiting process, I had met all of the executives at Nintendo of America, but I asked to speak with Satoru Iwata which was a disruption in the recruiting process. It is not something they had planned to do. And I learned later on that it caused quite a bit of, <laughs> quite a bit of uh, issues within Nintendo. You know, who is this person asking to meet with our global president? You know, what is all this about? But I explained that for me as a senior executive coming in, I needed to understand the strategy. And I needed to hear from the global president how he was thinking about the business and how he was anticipating to address some of the strategic concerns. And it was to be a 30-minute conversation. It ended up being something closer to an hour and a half. We hit it off from the get-go. We had a fantastic conversation. And again, this is before I'm, I'm an employee. And I have to say that that conversation 
set the stage for the next 10 years. He passed away about five years ago. And it built a relationship. It built a common understanding of what needed to be done with the business. And it framed for me how I needed to begin thinking about this business. Because, of course, you know, all of everything you think about uh, a business uh, tends to be wrong as you actually get in and, and start dealing with the nuts and bolts. And it began a wonderful journey for me. But that, that decision to have a conversation with Mr. Awada, to hear directly from him, to begin building a relationship with him, that was probably the best decision I made early on as I came on board to Nintendo. Now, full disclosure, we were a Nintendo and a PlayStation household growing up, which I'm sure you ran into many of your customers having that same, maybe not problem for them, but potentially problem for you. Was that very common to be working with, you know, households that were using multiple consoles? So in the early 2000s, it actually was not common for consumers to have a current generation system from two different console manufacturers. You know, so having a GameCube and a PS2, for example, was not common. What you did have is potentially a household who had an N64, but had made the decision to transition to a Sony platform, as an example. You, know, you have to remember, back in the early 2000s, only about one out of every three people played video games. Mm -hmm. It was not the massive industry that it is today. It was much smaller. It was a different business at the time. I would say today, it's actually quite common, typically for someone to have a Nintendo system and then another system. And part of it is Nintendo has its own stable of franchises. You can't play The Legend of Zelda on a competitive right. platform. And yet there are franchises that also exist only on the competitive platform. So consumers, many consumers choose to have both today. Now, when you were introduced as Nintendo's newest executive vice president of sales and marketing at the 2004 E3, which for those of us non-gamers, it's a gaming convention. And when you were there, you took on a particularly bold tone. And eventually, this led to Nintendo fans calling you the Reginator. How important was it for you to set that tone when you were first being introduced as opposed to a different one? It was critically important. And again, this really stemmed from that initial conversation with Mr. Awada. I was hired in December of 2003. I made my first business trip to Kyoto in early 2004. It was on that business trip that I continued to spend more and more time with Mr. Awada. I met Shigeru Miyamoto face-to-face -face for the first time, other Nintendo executives. It was during that trip that I saw a prototype of the Nintendo DS. You know, the Nintendo DS, even today, is one of the best-selling systems of all time. But I saw a working prototype of these two screens and the, the new types of entertainment that it could deliver. And so we had a plan. And I say we, it really was all of the, the Nintendo senior executives. We had a plan for how we would grow the Nintendo business. That plan was based on the proposition that we needed to get more and more people playing video games. And the only way to do that, in Nintendo's view, was to provide new forms of entertainment, entertainment that appealed to young and old, male and female, which, again, was fundamentally different than the view of our competitors. Our competitors at the time believed that more horsepower 
and photorealistic visuals were the key to getting more and more people to play. And Nintendo really had a different idea, a different path. So I benefited from knowledge of our plans and what we were looking to do. And as you mentioned, E3 really is a key point in time to motivate consumers, motivate retailers and other business partners. And we needed to be clear that this was a new Nintendo. And given my aggressive nature, given my ability to confidently speak in front of thousands, it became my job to set the stage for this new direction. And yes, you know, those faithful words, my name is Reggie, I'm about kicking ass and I'm about taking names, was, was completely thought through. And I was the biggest devil's advocate of, you know, is this really what we want to say? Is this really the approach? And in the end, it, it really began the journey of what Nintendo would accomplish over that next 15 years. It wasn't just the bravado of the statement. It was the fact that we had the goods to back it up. We showed the Nintendo DS for the very first time in that conference. We showed a video of a new Zelda game with a mature link, and uh, this game would become Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. And literally, it made people cry. It was that impactful. And so not only was there this brash executive making these statements, but here was the Nintendo DS. Here was excitement around a new Zelda game, and the momentum began to shift. And so over those 15 years, you really built Nintendo into this powerhouse player in the gaming industry. When building a brand, what are the core fundamentals that companies have to think about? You know, so the first thing I'd be clear on is it, it wasn't me, it was we. It was the developers making fantastic content. Uh, it was the leaders that I partnered with to drive the business forward. It, it was a team and it was a high functioning, strong leadership team that disagreed in private, but was aligned in public and drove the business forward. As we created our plan and then executed it, it started with having a crystal clear vision of what it was that we wanted to do. You know, I summarized it as we wanted to bring gaming to the masses. That was our mission. We wanted everyone to play our content and it aligned with the products that our developers were creating. You know, we were working on games that would appeal to the more core fan. And whether it was fans who love games like Metroid or Super Mario, but we were working on a game called Nintendogs, where you essentially raise a puppy and you do it by touching the screen and petting the dog or speaking commands to the dog, uh, something, uh, a game that appealed to very young consumers. Nintendo was creating Brain Age, a game targeted to consumers 50 plus. Small, little, quick thinking exercises, whether they were vocabulary or reading or math, all meant to test your brain and to keep your brain sharp. And we had everything in between. And obviously, we were at that time working on what would be known as the we. And so... We needed to have a clear vision of what we were trying to do and then execute against that vision. You know, from a branding standpoint, we had to be clear in what Nintendo as a brand stood for 
as well as what of the what the individual franchises stood for. And I'll, again, I'll give you an example. When I joined Nintendo, there was a sense of almost shame that Nintendo appealed to young consumers. And the marketing team at Nintendo of America started doing things with the logo, right? That classic Nintendo logo in an oval. They would put it in a graffiti style or they'd, they'd do different things to try and age up the logo. And I put a stop to that because that is not our brand. And what we needed to do was, yes, appeal to a broad swatch of consumers, but we needed to do it based on what the brand stood for and not doing it in some false way. So systemically, we went through and cleaned up the presentation of the brand, but we also created messaging coupled with content that really broadened the reach, broadened the appeal, and set the stage for all of the great products we would launch, like we, like we fit, and eventually the Nintendo Switch. And those brand-building decisions that you discussed, that wasn't just most notably seen during your time at Nintendo, but I know you've also shared the example of Bigfoot Pizza when you were at Pizza Hut, and you label this as something that hurt the brand. Can you tell our listeners the evolution of that product and what led you to conclude it was maybe not the best product to have introduced? So again, to, to set the stage, this was in the early 90s, recessionary time, and Pizza Hut had a competitor, a strong competitor in Little Caesars. Little Caesars brand proposition, two pizzas for one low price. And they were taking market share from Pizza Hut. And so we thought deeply how to combat this threat. And we created the proposition of Bigfoot Pizza. Two feet of pizza for one low price was the core proposition. And I joined that initiative after it had been test marketed in just a handful of restaurants in Las Vegas. And my role was to continue tweaking and shaping the concept and with success to launch it nationally. Uh, and eventually it was launched internationally. And to be clear, Bigfoot Pizza drove tremendous revenue for Pizza Hut. From a revenue and profit standpoint, it was a success. But from a branding standpoint, it was a failure. And the reason I say that is Pizza Hut is known for the highest quality pizza. Their line of pizzas, the range of toppings, the range of crusts, they really had the premium product positioning at the time. But with Bigfoot Pizza, in order to make the economics work, we used different cheese, we used a different crust. It wasn't the same pizza as the rest of the line for Pizza Hut. And consumers noticed. And as Bigfoot Pizza began to be a greater and greater share of all of the pizza sold by Pizza Hut, its product perception began to decline. The core fundamental of what it stood for, the best tasting pizza in the marketplace, began to decline. And I believe that while we inflicted significant pain on Little Caesars, almost drove them as a concept out of business. They're back now and, and they're, uh, they're continuing, they're growing now, I should say. But I'm convinced that Bigfoot Pizza opened up a product opportunity for what would become Papa John's, another 
product that's based on a high quality image that competes in the delivery space with Pizza Hut. And that's why I label Bigfoot Pizza as one of my personal biggest failures, because in the end, it eroded the value of the brand, even though, yes, it generated significant revenue and profit. How much of that pizza did you eat on a weekly basis? I ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, and, and this is this is one of the things that my kids loved about my career track. I mean, think about it. Pizza, you know, in the household, we had pizza in the house every week. The location near me was one of our uh, when I when I was in Wichita, Kansas. You know, we had uh, a, a test store near me that that we were getting all kinds of new pizzas into my household. So, yes, I ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> And it also meant that when I was working for Guinness, I was drinking a lot of beer. When I worked at Derby Cycle, I was riding my bike certainly a lot more than I do now. (laughs) And just like now, I continue to play a lot of video games. (laughs) And earlier, you had mentioned how people at Nintendo were trying to age up the brand and, you know, modifying that logo. So many of Nintendo's brands like Mario, Donkey Kong, they've been around for decades with gamers. And recently, we've seen companies with storied brands refresh them, try to put a spin on them to appeal to those millennial audiences. How did Nintendo think about keeping these brands modern and refreshed? I have to say, in in this context, our developers are second to none. You know, our developers are constantly thinking about how to introduce new game mechanics, how to introduce new elements to keep the franchises fresh. And in my mind, the best example of this is what our developers have done with the Legend of Zelda franchise. And I'm a passionate fan of this franchise. I've played all of the Zelda games. The typical Zelda formula was that you would progress down a linear path. You would pick up items along the way. These items would allow you to beat smaller level bosses to eventually get into a special dungeon where you would receive the special weapon that would allow you to defeat that dungeon boss. That was the paradigm of a Zelda game. But with the latest game, the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, that was introduced for the Nintendo Switch, the developers took the conventions of a Zelda game and turned it on its ear. The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a wide open game. From the time you start, you can go try and beat the ultimate boss. You probably won't succeed, but you could try. Instead of having singular weapons in the traditional Zelda game, there's a plethora of weapons in this new Zelda game, Breath of the Wild. The issue is that the weapons break. And so you're constantly having to make a decision of, do I use you know, this high-powered weapon here with these lower-level bosses, or do I hold on to it, use something else as you progress through the game? So you could progress it in a nonlinear fashion. The weapons break. The bosses are different. They change so many of the conventions. But from a brand standpoint, it's still Zelda. It's all of the other elements. The protagonist is Link. You're working with the princess. All of these other elements are the same, but the gameplay is so different. You know, this game now is one of the best-selling games of all time. It's, it's a game that is viewed as one of the best-made games of all time. But it is Zelda, but it is so different. 
it's a classic example of how the Nintendo developers think about a franchise and think about how to continually refresh it, how to continually make it new, but not change the core essence of what the franchise or the brand is. So developers are key to innovation. But you've also mentioned that innovation really runs through the entire company at Nintendo. How did you build a culture of innovation for a company that's 130 years old? You know, again, it, it starts at the top. It starts with a leadership mentality that innovation is what we stand for and innovation is everyone's business. And I'll give you two examples. In the Nintendo headquarters in Kyoto, in one of the main conference rooms, there's a plaque with kanji lettering that says, make something unique, make something unique. And it really is a driving mantra and mentality at Nintendo. I was thrilled when one of my good friends uh, within Nintendo gave me my own kanji lettering that I have in my home office that says, make something unique. So it runs throughout the company, and it's something that started with the very first Hanafuda cards that Nintendo made in 1889, and it runs to this day. At Nintendo of America, we are not a development company. The development activity really happens largely in Japan and in other uh, development locations. But we drive a mentality to always make something unique. Whether you're in our warehouse and distribution center, and we were one of the first companies to install cameras in the facility. We did that because when we ship out product to our retailers, this is high value shipments. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, we had situations where retailers were saying that not all of the shipment arrived. So we, we could not sustain those types of shortage claims. So we installed cameras. We know with 99.9999% accuracy what is in every box, what is in every trailer that goes out to our retailers. And you know, this was done well before Amazon and other companies instilled these same types of methods in their warehouses. So at every stage in every part of the company, we drive towards innovation. We drive towards making something unique. And it's, uh, it's something that has to be driven from the top as a key innovation principle. Now, of course, creating the next best-selling product is fantastic. But not every product is a game changer. So you've discussed before that products that don't maybe perform as well, you actually get a lot of insight from them. So what kinds of learnings did you receive from products that weren't slam dunks? You know, so one of, one of our innovation principles or one of the innovation principles that, that I've created, I have a talk that's called the Innovator's Rulebook for Breaking the Rules. And in that talk, you know, as I highlight that you know, innovation is a culture and a mindset and that you have to innovate with unexpected relevance, I highlight that innovators fail. If you're not failing, you're not pushing hard enough on the innovation spectrum. But the difference between successful innovators and those that are not as successful, in my view, is that you have to learn to fail forward. You need to take learnings from your failures and apply them to future activity. So whether it was Bigfoot Pizza 
and how you know we had negative impacts on the brand and how Pizza Hut had to redouble its efforts in creating new pizza-based products. We learned how to fail forward in order to apply relevance to our future activity. The same is true at all of the different businesses that I've worked on, whether it was VH1 or Derby Cycle or Nintendo. We had to learn to fail forward and to take key elements of initiatives that don't work as well and apply them to future activity. You know, I I would argue as an example that Nintendo Switch would not exist without some of the key learnings that we had from the Wii U. And commercially, the Wii U is is perceived as a failure. It did not work in the marketplace, certainly the way Nintendo had hoped. But what was learned was that consumers wanted an experience that could be on their big screen at home, and they wanted to take it with them when they left to go out. That was a, an element within the Wii U, this gamepad that was connected from a technology standpoint to the console in your home. But once you got past about 30 feet from that console, then the, the Wii U gamepad lost its connection. And we heard from lots and lots of consumers that, you know, I, I want to be able to play this in other rooms in my house and I want to take it with me on the go. So it was a key insight. It was applied to the Nintendo Switch. Play it on your big screen, take it out of its dock, take it with you. It's, it's to me, another great example of how you learn to fail forward and apply key learnings as you go. And so Nintendo has been quite successful in bringing gaming to the masses. We've discussed a few examples throughout this conversation. But of course, you do have to segment. So you've spoken to me before about how you took two approaches to customer segmentation. One, looking at that large game-playing audience, that high revenue generation. And the second, looking at those more underserved audiences. So in that larger game-playing space. Uh, You mentioned first-person shooter games before. How did Nintendo look at this audience and build a product for them? So this first-person shooter category, products in this category are Doom, Call of Duty. These are fairly gritty and dark games. But Nintendo's vision as a company is to make consumers smile. That's what it wants to do with its video game products as it executes a collaboration with Universal Studios in theme parks, as it works on a movie. The vision is to make consumers smile. So as Nintendo thought about this first-person shooter category, we had to create something that would motivate the consumer and address the needs of this large market segment, but that would do it in a way that was uniquely Nintendo. And the solution was a franchise called Splatoon. It is a first-person shooter game in all of the mechanics. But instead of shooting bullets, you're spraying ink. And the objective is not to wipe out the competing team. The objective is to put as much paint down of your color in the arena and the team that covers the most space with their ink wins. And you don't play as a hardened combat veteran. You play as a kid known as an inkling that can change into a squid 
and swim in the ink. And just as I describe this, you can't help but smile. It is a gameplay element that is whimsical, that is amusing, but make no mistake, it has all of the strategy, all of the team-based communication, all of the elements that appeal to a player in this first-person shooter space, but it's done in a uniquely Nintendo style. That's the approach that the company takes as it thinks about how to enter a marketplace. How do we do it in a way that is uniquely Nintendo? but can appeal to that significant market segment. And you've also mentioned in that underserved audience, the product Brain Age. What was the evolution of that product? Yeah, so again, it, it starts from the core vision. We want to make people smile. It comes from a mentality that we wanted to achieve gaming for the masses. When you look at a segmentation of video game play, and again, Brain Age was launched you know, roughly, roughly in the mid-2000s. Again, at the time, the gaming segment was small in total, and there weren't a lot of people over 50 playing video games. It just had been part of their entertainment repertoire. So we wanted to expand the audience, and we saw this 50-plus consumer base as a key opportunity. Satoru Wada had a relationship with a professor, actually a doctor, but he also taught at a leading university in Japan. And this individual had some theories as to how individuals can keep their brains sharp. This individual had created workbooks in Japan, and Mr. Wada talked with this person, and out of that collaboration, became Brain Age. Again, a game that has a series of mini experiences, fast-paced, they, at the end of, of a daily five-minute series of exercises, you get a Brain Age score, so you're able to track your progress. That's a key element of gamifying an experience. You want to track your progress, see how you proceed. There needs to be some level of reward in the experience. And we launched this product globally. And again, as we were showing this, people scoffed. You know, what is this? Uh, you, you, is this really a game? You know, you, Nintendo, have you lost your mind? And yet Brain Age ended up being one of the best-selling games in video game history. And it was a key part of our business strategy to have hundreds of millions of consumers playing our content. And so you know, a great example of thinking about a new and different market segment, doing your research, coming up with a proposition that works, and then being relentless in driving that business forward. Now, Reggie, of course, I cannot let you go until we talk about the my body is ready meme. So for those who don't know exactly what this meme is, when Reggie was introducing the We Balance board at an event, he walked on stage and said, my body is ready, and a meme was born. So what does becoming a meme mean to you, and how did it impact Nintendo? So becoming a meme means that whether I'm here on campus or at my local grocery store, I get recognized and people smile and, and people tell me how much they love Nintendo and, and are appreciative of, of what I've been able to do. Becoming a meme was never planned, not with that opening line in 2004, not with those faithful words as I first stepped on a Wii balance board, 
not with videos that have lasers coming out of my eyes. You know, if, if you go to, uh, you know, to any place on the web where you can download memes and, and attach them to uh, text messages and Instagram posts, I don't know, last time I looked, I think there were, there were about close to 100 different memes uh, of me doing different <laughs> things. So they're never planned. They happen because, in, in my view, first, you know, Nintendo's in the entertainment space. You know, we make people smile. And we're fortunate to have exposure on a global basis to literally you know, hundreds of millions of consumers. My personality is big. I like to have fun. I've done a lot of fun things on behalf of Nintendo. And we have passionate fans, fans that react to these, to these memes and proliferate them throughout the internet. You can never anticipate what will become a meme. You know, the, the my body is ready statement. So, you know, when we're preparing for an E3 presentation, there's lots of rehearsals. We make sure everything is going to go right. And for this introduction of We Fit and the We Balance Board, it was myself, Shigeru Miyamoto, our most well-known game creator, and his translator, a good friend uh, of mine by the name of Bill Trinan. And we were rehearsing this over the course of a couple, three days. It got to be a little monotonous. And every time I would go to step on the balance board, I would be making some sort of wisecrack or another. And late in the rehearsals, I said, my body is ready. And it was the first time that I actually got Mr. Miyamoto to laugh. <laughs> he, actually, he thought that statement was pretty funny. So it was, you know, hey, I've got a winner here. And we continued to practice and I continued to do different things. So, so no one on stage knew what I was going to say. And yet here we are, the experience is being videotaped, we're broadcasting it out. And I made that statement. And yes, it's a meme out there. So never plan, they, they really do come naturally, but they're driven by the reach um, that I've been able to have and the passion of our fans. And I know you mentioned that Nintendo's goal is to put smiles on people's faces, which I know is certainly true for my production team that has been playing Nintendo games since they were little kids, and also for our students at Cornell, or at least many of them. And you just started your role as leader in residence at the Dyson School. What are your goals as the inaugural leader, and what kind of impact do you want to have on our students? Cornell University has been a foundational experience for me. I'm a first-generation American. My parents emigrated here from Haiti. I always did well in school. I was in the top 0.1% in my graduating class. But when it came to the college experience, I, I was on my own. I, I had to do all the research. I had to look at all of the various schools. And back in the late 70s, which is when I was applying to university, it's, it was very different than today. I applied to three schools. One was the proverbial safety school that I knew I would get in. One was a college that was recruiting me for sports. I played soccer and basketball in high school. And the third was Cornell University, the proverbial stretch school. The school that I, I got into would be the one I would attend, but it would create challenges. How do you pay for it? Would I succeed? And I was fortunate. It was the day of orientation that I first stepped on campus. 
Over the next four years, uh, I had a fantastic experience in and out of the classroom. I was engaged in extracurricular activities uh, with a social fraternity. I was working as a teaching assistant for a number of professors in the Dyson School. Because of that foundational experience and, and because of everything that happened to me since the introduction to Procter & Gamble, my career path, I've always given back to the university in, in some way, shape, or form. And so the opportunity with this leader-in-residence program, the opportunity to come back on campus, to give big lectures, to be in classroom settings with students, to meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, to give perspective on my experiences, to me is just a, a wonderful way to give back to the university. My hope is that as I share leadership principles, as I share my own personal experiences, as I challenge students, my hope is that you know, students take away from that experience some insight, some perspective. Hopefully, I'm able to open the minds of students and have them consider things maybe that they hadn't been considering before, whether that's in the professional space or personally. I want to engage with the broader community. The lecture that I gave on campus was open to the public, and it was wonderful to see high school students there. It was wonderful to see fans that drove from Boston to attend the presentation. And so really an opportunity to touch as many people as I can and share my principles is just what I, I really value as an opportunity. It'll also give me an opportunity to spend time with administrators. I'm passionate about education, not only higher ed, but K through 12, sharing perspectives in that space. And so for me, it's a way to take all of the energy and passion I have and direct it in an area that I hope can touch people's lives. Well, Reggie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Such a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on to Present Value. Absolutely. Thank you so much.